go through a stretch where you play like four really good defensive teams and they, they kind of copycat each other and they figure out a way to beat you. And you lose a little swagger and confidence, but then you regain it. That's kind of been the jazz. I feel like tonight they'll play well. I feel like they're going to catch their rhythm. They'll win tonight. They'll go to Cleveland and win. They'll go to New York and win. And then they'll be in a much better state of mind to go take on the Celtics in Boston. There is the Mike Smith way, AT&T Sportsnet analyst. He joined us last time on Round Ball Roundup. Part two of that conversation continues. Hear that a little bit later. We'll review the win against Washington and get you set for this road swing as the Jazz head to the East Coast. This is Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm JP Chunga. Podcast is brought to you by Fanatics. For authentic Utah Jazz player gear, including jerseys, shorts, warm-ups, and more, visit fanaticsauthentic.com slash utahjazzgu. Fanaticsauthentic.com slash utahjazzgu. So Mike was right. Get the victory against Washington. Was close until the end, but Utah exploded during the third quarter, outscored him by 11 32 to 21, and set the tone from the beginning. Two dunks by Donovan Mitchell in the first six minutes, one over Rui Hachimura, which brought the building to its feet. The replay was so nice. Emmett Smith, I'm sure he watched it twice. Donovan goes for 30. He's been scoring since the All Star break, averaging 29 points, 47 shooting from the field, 40% from three. 80% from the line. But what I love about his game is how frequent he's getting to the free throw line. Six attempts that's bumped up from the four that he's averaging during the season. As far as taking up that efficiency, and if you're looking at what Jason Tatum is doing in Boston, how he's taken that leap in this year three for him, it's been going to the line more. And Donovan has done that, at least in the little stretch that we've seen post-All-Star break. A team needs to play better, and they got that victory against Washington, which may not silence the critics immediately. Rhythm is what it's about for this final 20-so-odd game stretch. If Donovan's in that rhythm, he can carry an offense, get those supplementary forces from Boyan, Mike, Jordan, and then things can be really humming. Boyan scored the first points of the night, connected with Mike Conley, and this was a really efficient game by Mike. He had 16 points, 6 assists, 5 rebounds, made the right decisions, played in a lineup that shined. He was alongside George Niang, Joe Ingles, Jordan Clarkson, Tony Bradley. And that squad, that group of five, interestingly enough, were the only plus players in the plus-minus that game. Mike, plus 18. Joe, plus 17. Jordan, plus 17. Tony, plus 22. George, plus 23. That group kept things afloat and added to a lead in the third quarter that gave the distance for Utah to continue it in the fourth. Brad Beal went off. You're not going to control that guy, especially in the way that he's playing. 42 points on the night. But that group adding a plus, being a good rotation to go in the third quarter as you're starting to mix and match bench players, these are positives that you're looking for is... Rhythm is a priority. Also, Utah continue to employ that zone defense. I feel like I'm watching Syracuse when I'm out there. Very familiar to see. I'm sure we'll hear more from Quinn Snyder as he explains why Utah's playing more zone, but they are. Previous to the All-Star break, they had played four possessions of zone. Against Houston, it was 14. And now as we look over more and more that Utah's playing zone, it highlights what Rudy can do defensively. 
as NBA writers are starting to feel worried about what Rudy can do on that side of the floor, could be more tied to that rhythm, finding it offensively, which bleeds to your defense. Coach David Thorpe detailed this in one of the earlier editions of Round Ball Roundup, how Coach Quinn's offense is designed so everybody touches the ball to activate their defense on the other end. This zone could be another way to activating more things for Rudy defensively. And it could be simplifying things to funnel its way towards Rudy as well. Jazz have this four-game road swing, and they start out against Cleveland today, who is a little bit better when they lost John Beeline as their head coach. They're receiving that coaching change bump, 3-3 three and three with J.B. Bickerstaff, 19th on offense, 15th on defense. They were at the bottom in both of those categories with John Beeline as the head coach. They may be without Andre Drummond. He's doubtful. They are without Dante Exum. Tristan Thompson, those guys are out. Expect to see a heavy dose of Colin Sexton. This is still more about gaining that rhythm for Friday. New York is in a bad bit of form. Losers of six of the last seven. They had a six-game losing streak heading into a game against Chicago. They broke out of that. They're going to lose again because they've got Houston on the front end of a back-to-back on Tuesday. It's evaluation mode for Leon Rose, who has established the head of things over in New York. He wants to be behind the scenes. And no drama with the Knicks, hard to achieve. It's like trying to not tweet about love is blind. Very difficult. That might be the right course of action. He has connections in the basketball world, a former agent. It's along the lines of what Rob Palenka is doing in L.A., Justin Zanuck here in Utah. Having those connections to get to the players and increase the talent level on your team. How he is as a basketball administrator remains to be seen, because this is a different job than just being an agent. Either way, Mitchell Robinson leading the league in field goal percentage, trying to get on the end of actions from R.J. Barrett. Those two were pivotal in the win against Chicago, but these are two teams that are languishing at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. Then the Celtics on Friday, and Pistons on Saturday. We'll be covered live from New York and Boston as the digital team will be out on the East Coast. Aaron Falk and Angie Treasure live on the scene. Let's get to Mike Smith, the AT&T Sportsnet analyst. Part two of our conversation. Of course, you can check out the front end of this discussion. Just search Round Ball Roundup. We're everywhere. iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. In the first part, Mike discussed basketball-wise what's going on with the Jazz Gave a little bit of background in what he's been about. Played volleyball growing up, football as well. And he got into the sock battle that he has with Lemma Harrington. Now you'll hear how he got into broadcasting. And he shares a funny story about the lessons that he learned from Hot Rod Hundley. You'll enjoy that. But first, we start out talking about his first connection to Utah. Why he chose BYU. It's really kind of funny. Um... Of course, as a little kid, and being a member of the church, I grew up, my mom and dad went to the U, by the way, and grew up in Salt Lake City. They went to East High School. And so the U recruited me, and BYU did, but also UCLA and USC and Stanford and Arizona and even Virginia from the ACC. I said no to most other East Coast schools just because I didn't want to travel. So they never really came out for official visits. But Kansas came out and Notre Dame came out. I said no to North Carolina and Duke. Um, But I I guess I always wanted to go to BYU. 
Um, I dreamt of going to UCLA to play basketball, and I dreamt of going to USC to play football. Those are like my favorite teams growing up. So I know the wooden teams as a young kid, and I know the John Robinson football teams at SC as a little kid. Now, SC didn't throw the ball like we did in our high school, but not back then anyway. But those were the two places I wanted to go locally. And I guess I came to the conclusion, well, UCLA's basketball program was in the tanks, was just in the cellar when I came out. So I think Walt Hazard was the coach. They'd had a really poor year. I decided no there. And I guess I decided that if I was going to play both sports, the place to do it would be BYU because I loved everything the university stood for. But I also loved the way they played football. So I'm coming on the heels of, you know, from Gifford Nielsen to Mark Wilson to Jim McMahon to Steve Young. And, you know, my freshman year, Steve Young was a senior. So I got to see him firsthand, how great he was. And then following him is Bosco, which is really while I'm on my mission. And then Ty Detmer is when I'm back from my mission. And I get to see him win the Heisman. So, I don't know. Um, I really felt like it was the best place for me. And I think I came to the conclusion that if I was good enough, I could even make the pros from BYU. And that's not a knock on BYU. But, I mean, all the other schools would tell me, oh, you got to come here, you got to come to this, you know, top 10 Division One program if you want to make the NBA. And I kind of set out to prove them wrong. Like, I knew I wanted the, the church or religious aspect at BYU and the standards, but I wanted the social aspect. And I felt like somewhat of a responsibility, like Danny Ainge kind of put the basketball program on the map, and I kind of felt like I need to go there, and I need to do the same. And so I considered it, I don't know, uh, I felt like it was an honor and a privilege to go there and, and represent the school. So that's, that's basically why I, I chose. And it led to a career overseas in the NBA as well. What did that road overseas and internationally teach you about the game and just its growth beyond it being a sport inside this country? Well, let's be honest. My NBA career did not go as, as planned. And so um, I'm the 13th pick. I go to the Boston Celtics. I think it's the perfect team for me because I get to play behind Bird and McHale and Robert Parrish. What I didn't realize then, and I know very well now, is that you need to get established in your first two years. And you need to get established in your own mind and in everyone else's mind. And that's just not your own fan base or your own coaches. That's like everyone else in the league. And I sat the bench. And when I played, I played well. I mean, I think you can document like the, the 35 games in my career where I played more than 22 minutes, and I averaged like 16 points a game in those games. So there's a handful of games my rookie year when I start and I play well. But it was so different then. Like today, they all talk about load management, and there's almost set times when guys come out of a game. Really, the Utah Jazz were the only team that did that back then. I mean, Stockton would come out at that eight-minute timeout of the first quarter, you know, with like four minutes to go. And Malone kind of had a set time when he would rest. And here would come in Stockton's replacement, whether it was, you know, whether it was Ricky Green before him or John Crotty or Howard Isley or, you can kind of go through the, the list of how it all played out. Jerry Sloan was 
I think, ahead of his time in how he preserved the legs. And I think it was helpful not only to the starters, but to the subs. The subs knew exactly when they would come in. We didn't do that on the Celtics. So, like, Bird played 44 of the 48 minutes, and he wanted to play the other four. And this is in the days when you have 25 back-to-backs, and you have many weeks where you had three and four nights and, and four and five nights. It just was way different. Guys played a ton of minutes, and guys wanted to play. And there was not time for rookies. And we were an old, old but veteran team. Bird, 32. McHale, 30. Parrish, 33. Jim Paxson, 31. Dennis Johnson, 35. You know, there's not a lot of minutes there. Joe Klein and Ed Pinckney, 28. So I'm a rookie at 23, and, you know, I'm getting, you know, five to seven minutes a game. But but I loved everything about it. Uh, I think I would do things differently if I had it over again. I'm not sure it was the best team for me, given what I said about having to get established early. And quite frankly, I lost my confidence for the first time in my life. And not because of anything I did. It was because I actually was watching the best players in the world. And it was the first time in my life I ever sat the bench. And so it was the first time in my life a, a bit of doubt ever crept in. And it's like, wow, can I really do this? And, and, I, and I eventually established the fact that I could, but not maybe soon enough and not maybe in the time that the Celtics wanted. And so anyway, then I got you know released by the Celtics on a set of circumstances my third year when we had three guards go down and I was the least paid player on the team. And so anyway, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I, I did go overseas. I led the Spanish league and, and Italian league in scoring. I led them in free throw shooting. I, I very much became the same player I was in college in those overseas leagues, which is a, a 26 to 28 point a game scorer who grabbed nine, 10 rebounds and shot, 50 from the field and 40 from three and 90 from the line. So I just never was able to do that at the NBA level, but I kind of feel like I didn't ever really get the chance, but I don't, you know, as you get older, it's not that the stories change or get better. I guess you gain perspective. And so it doesn't really matter now, right? Yeah. If I'd played five more years in the NBA, I might have a little more money in my pocket, but I might've lost it when the stock market crashed and the world changed in 2008. So I don't think any of that matters. You know, you just look back and say, hey, I, I had a great time. I gave it my all. I lived overseas. Uh, I became fluent in Italian. I was already fluent in Spanish. And it just, I don't know, uh, I look back on it with great respect, right, for, for maybe not a career that became an all-star career or a Hall of Fame career, but something that I'm still proud of and something that was a tremendous experience. Being on the Celtics, there is no better spot, especially at that time in basketball when they were so important. You've remained close to the game by going into broadcasting. Why? Why did you choose to go down that route? I, I, I really... I don't know that I ever wanted to become a broadcaster. Okay, I'm a, I'm a pre-med major at BYU, thinking I'm going to go to med school, but then I get drafted into the NBA. And med school is not really the thing that you can go in your off-seasons because the retention has to be such that you need to do it consecutively. 
I think law school, you could do something like that where you played an NBA season and came back in the off season and did the next year of law school. Um, so I, I, I ruled that out and, um, my major was Spanish. My minor was zoology and I was going to med school, but I also had a minor in communications with an emphasis on broadcasting, but uh, I didn't know that I wanted to go into broadcasting. I also didn't realize growing up in California, I listened to two of the very best every single night as a kid. And that was Vin Scully and Chick Hearn. And so Vin Scully was the Dodgers announcers for 60 plus years. And Chick Hearn did over 3000 games. And that's the guy from whom Rod Hunley learned how to do jazz play by play on the radio and his, you know, simulcast on TV so Chick was the best, and those were the guys I learned from. But I didn't know I was learning from them. I just listened to them as a kid. And so, I don't know, I finished playing and actually, you know, wondered what I would do. So it's almost serendipitous that BYU calls me and says, would you like to broadcast our games? Well, I'd never broadcasted. I'd never done TV. I'd never done any part of it. They flew me up and I did a couple mock games in the truck like one year while watching them do the game. And I kind of liked it. And I said, I'll do that. And so I think the next year I did 15 games. And I think I did three years of BYU games. As a matter of fact, that was first, first year was with Craig Bowler Jack. I was going to say, you were with Bowler, right? Yeah. So Bowler's doing BYU. I'm his color guy. Um. And so I not only got to, you know, hear through osmosis, two of the best as a kid, but I learned from Bowler right away, which was a treat. And he was great to travel with and be with. And he was a seasoned pro. So he taught me. And, and that was fun. And uh, then I approached, you know, kind of getting a little like for it. I approached the Clippers. So the Clippers, I still lived in L.A. And the Clippers were like the last team I played for in the NBA. And I called him up and I said, listen, I said, I can broadcast. I want to do your games in Spanish. Do you have a Spanish television? And they're like, nope, we don't. I said, do you have Spanish radio? And they said, nope, we don't. And I said, well, you've got an incredible fan base here in Southern California that speaks Spanish. I said, what are the chances you might have a former player who was a first-round draft pick who's fluent in Spanish? I said, who could do the games and build your fan base? And they said, you know what? Let us consider it. And I said, they came back to me and said, you know, we don't have, we don't have the station. We don't have this. We, and I said, listen, that part's easy. I'll go find a station. I'll go sell the ads. I said, let's do this. And the Lakers, who were also here, had all that. They had a Spanish broadcast on radio. They had Spanish TV and so anyway, they came back to me after a couple of weeks, said, no, we don't want to do it. And I think it was the mindset of the Clippers at the time. They weren't ready to grow or they were kind of stuck being who they were. But they did come back to me and say, you know, we're not that happy with our English play-by-play guy on the radio. What are the chances you might want to do that? And so their next question was like, have you ever done play-by-play? <laughs> which the real answer is no. Right. And their next question was, have you ever done radio? And my you know, truthful answer should have been no. But I said to them, of course I can do that. But I didn't know if I could do it, but I figured out how to do it. And, and they hired me. I, I 
ended up training and learning from the current television play-by-play guy, the Clippers, and he helped me, and I put together a tape on disc. Not even on disc, guys. It's on, on cassette tape. I watched a Clipper game on television with no sound, and I called the game into a microphone into a, a cassette, if you can imagine that. And I mailed it to the Clippers, and they hired me on the spot, and that's how I became an NBA broadcaster. So I don't know if that fact is known, but I did uh, the first five years of the 20 years I worked for the Clippers. I was their radio play-by-play guy. So a lot like what David Locke does now. And I worked alone. I did the whole show by myself. And then I would fill in on TV for Bill Walton, who was our TV color guy. So he was like, you know, the Matt Harpreen or whatever. And when Walton had a conflict with a national game, I would do television color. So now I'm doing radio play-by-play and TV color, and then I'm hired by NBA TV in the summer to do both things for the summer league. And from there, I guess it expanded. But I did the first five years of radio play-by-play, and, and then I became the TV color guy when Walton retired. And so it does create, because most of your audience are jazz fans, Hot Rod Hunley and I are the only two ever to have been first-round picks, played in the NBA, and done radio play-by-play for the NBA. So I think that's pretty stinking cool, because I think Hot Rod is one of the greatest broadcasters ever. And quite the same road. Hot Rod started as the analyst for Chick Hearn, right? Exactly. Next to one of the best. And he learned from one of the best, and he became, I mean, arguably, I mean, Hot Rod's amount of detail that he could give you in a short amount of time, not, forget about his catchphrases and his voice and just the, the, the rhythm and the canter with which he, he did a game was just unique and second to none. But the amount of information he could give you in such a short amount of time was just a thing of beauty. And so I loved you know, listening to him, watching him, and uh, gosh, one of the highlights of my broadcast career is coming to play the jazz and going to uh, Market Street Grill for dinner with Hot Rod the night before a game, and like picking his brain was a blast to have that opportunity before he passed on. What did he teach you? He taught me how to have fun and to be funny and to be myself. And as a radio broadcaster, two of the most important lessons that he solidified, I already knew, was never lose sight of the ball or, or never lose track of the ball, never lose track of the score. So you can never tell those two things enough, which I think is becoming a lost art, right? Uh, we, we've become such a visual society that we think everyone's watching on TV, which is not true. So you can never say the score enough. And you can never assume that the listener knows who O'Neal plays for, right? Like most jazz fans would say, oh, well, Royce O'Neal's our guy. But you can't assume that the listener who just turned the game on knows who has the ball. And he was so great at that. And, you know, radio play-by-play is just an art form. There's like a a three-second window for the color guy to get in at half court. And then there's like a three to four second window for him to get in and make a comment in and out really quick after a made bucket or on any stoppage of play. 
on any stoppage of play, you'd let the color guy get in and give his thoughts and why something's happening. But the rest of the time is all play-by-play because you cannot rob the listener of the action. And so I love listening to guys, and I was very much this way when I broadcasted, who, who created the moment. So, like, you know, Ingles around the corner, you know, drives to his left, into the lane, kick to the wing to O'Neal for three. I mean, you have to do that. You have to be on top of that action so that when Royce O'Neal or Kyle Korver last year or Donovan Mitchell this year or Bogey is in the corner shooting three, you have to let the listener enjoy the flight of the ball with you by a change in your tone of voice. And then you can, like, hold out or lay out when the ball swishes through and the effects should tell you if it's a make or the fan reaction tells you if it's a make. And, of course, you can hammer it home with a good or you know, however you would call it. But my pet peeve in broadcasting is listening to a guy who tells you after the fact what happened. You know, Ingles already shot it from the wing, and he made a three, and then the announcer says, oh, and, you know, Ingles just made a three. Uh, the Jazz are, Jazz are up by two. I'm like, really? Give it to me before, and give it to me while the ball's in flight, and this shot is for the tie. You know, and that that engages that listener. Anyway, see, you're getting me fired up about broadcasting. I love it because you can tell as a listener just from the crowd how they react, whether the broadcaster is on top of the play. You can hear when they're ooing and eyeing at something and you may not have accurately described it or maybe you did and you're right on top of that, that action as it occurs. It's more important to be on top of the action than to be correct. So like in radio, if there's a play around the rim and, and both Gobert elevates, and let's go back to last year, and let's say Gobert and Favors elevate at the same time, and you don't know which one tipped it in. It's more important to say it was tipped in by the Jazz and the bucket's good and now the game's tied with three minutes to go than it is to get it right as to who tipped it in. You can always go back and say, by the way, they gave that bucket to Favors and not Gobert. Mm -hmm. But there are announcers who will struggle and want to get that accurate in that moment, but they rob the listener of the excitement of the play. Here's Mike Smith discussing broadcasting, something that I will always lean into a conversation with. Hot Rod really was unique when it comes to the rat-a-tat nature that he would do things, how he would get so much information in one sentence. That style might not be able to be recreated by everybody, should be emulated by many. Enjoy the discussion with Mike Smith. Again, part one was on Friday's edition of Round Ball Roundup. Make sure to check it out. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And while you're there... Five-star reviews. That's all I ask of you. Next time you hear from me, we'll be previewing Jazz Celtics in a pivotal clash. Tune in on Friday. Round Ball Roundup. I'm JP Chunga, and until next time, bye for now.